if you've ever read the book of Romans, it's a pretty hefty piece of theology. It's a pretty hefty piece of teaching. And there's so much packed in there. It's such a dense book. But um, I do want to share tonight about what I think is at the heart of the book of Romans. And when you come to study a book, a good place to start is asking what it's about. And a good place to find out what it's about is asking whether the book itself says what it's about. And we have that very thing in Romans 1, 16 and 17. So this is a, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He probably wrote it from Corinth in the mid-50s of the first century. And the first bit, just like any letter, is an introduction. It's a greeting. And Paul kind of does an overview of what he's going to say. But then when you get to verse 16, he gets to, okay, this is what I'm really writing about. This is the heart of why I'm writing. And it says, 15 says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Four, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I just want to talk a little bit about the historical context of when Paul was writing this book. The church in Rome wasn't started by an apostle. We don't know how it began. And so Paul, who is an apostle, is interested. He's writing to these Christians, and he's making sure that they have a firm foundation in what the faith actually is. He's writing to them. He hasn't been able to visit yet, but he's hoping to visit. And before he gets there, he wants to make sure that they've really, really heard the gospel. And so Romans, that's why Romans turns out to be such a, such a dense book, such a meaty book explaining the gospel. It's, it's Paul's most well-thought-out uh, book. And what I didn't know, what I, what I found out in researching this was that the majority of Christians in Rome would have been ex-slaves. They would have been freed slaves. And I never knew that before. But it makes sense when you read the book then because Paul talks so much about being a slave to sin and then being a slave to God. When you understand they were, they were slaves or ex-slaves, that opens up their whole world something they understand. And slaves, back in those days, they could purchase their freedom. If they could, if they could earn enough money, save enough money from the, the extra work that they did or what little wages they sometimes got, they could sometimes earn enough to, to purchase their, their freedom. And what I want to talk about is the heart of this book, salvation by faith, justification by faith. Paul's writing to people who knew about getting salvation, getting redemption by purchase, because they probably would have bought their own freedom themselves. 
But Paul's going to go on to say that actually salvation is a gift. Redemption and justification is a gift from God. So I want to look at the significance of that. So we'll look at what's, what is the gift, why does it matter that it's a gift, and how do we respond to the gift? How do we receive the gift? So we read verses 16 and 17. That's Paul's thesis. This is what he's going to delve into. The whole book, in other words, you have to read the whole book in terms of that statement of purpose. Everything that he goes on to do, he's trying to expound, he's trying to explain that theme, okay? And so I'm just going to, we're going to focus in on, on chapter 3, but before we get there, what Paul's doing is, through the course of this book, like I said, he's trying to give them a foundation of what this whole Christianity thing is about, and so Paul starts from the beginning, and he gives in a nutshell, the whole story of salvation, the whole story of the message of the gospel. He doesn't do that necessarily in other books because he would have been there to preach it in person. But here he gives the whole story. I asked my class yesterday, what is the gospel? Paul here, he gives you the whole gospel, the whole plan of salvation. So from verses uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to 2, 16, he explains the problem, the problem that the world is in. And the problem is that the world has rebelled against God, and God, because of that, he's given them over to their own desires, which ultimately lead to death, which ultimately lead to destruction. And he says they have no excuse. First of all, he's talking about the whole world in general. They have no excuse because the law... They know what's right and wrong. It's written on their hearts because God has given them a conscience. And so they have no excuse. And God is just. He judges everyone according to what they've done. And there's no partiality. There's no special favoritism. It says anyone who lives righteously, who does good, will get eternal life. Anyone who lives unrighteously, who does evil, will be condemned. God is absolutely and terribly fair. Then from chapter 2, 17 to chapter 3, 20, this is the next step in the plan, okay? Everything went wrong. There was a big problem. The whole world rebelled against God. So what did God do about it? Well, he chose Abraham, and he set a plan in motion to fix everything, to redeem it all, to set the world to rights, by choosing out a special people, Israel, who would maintain his law and bring about a savior, bring about the Messiah. But chapter seven, uh, 2.17 there starts going on into, it's not only the world that has failed and rebelled, but even the people that God picked out, Israel, has failed and rebelled. So it's not only the Gentiles the whole world, the Greek world that's lost, but it's the Jews that are lost too. They've rebelled against God too. So God set in, plan this motion, uh, set, set in motion this plan to fix the problem of sin, but the people that he chose fell into sin too. They broke their covenant with him. 
And that's why we get uh, verse, uh, in chapter 3, it says, ultimately, none is righteous. Not even one. Not a single person is righteous before God. You know, and Paul was Jewish. And so he, he's got in mind this, 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 this dilemma that Israel was in. All through the Bible, um, we're reminded of God's promises to Israel, God's covenant. And the covenant promised, God promised in that agreement to deal with sin, to deal with the root of the problem of sin. And the Jews waited for that. They expected that. They hoped for that. That's what everything was looking towards. But then Paul's got to deal with the problem of, hold on, but now Israel's become part of the problem. So how can God make good on that promise of being just and making up for sin and righting the wrongs of the world without also destroying Israel? That's also part of the problem now. Does that make sense? <laughs> He's caught. There's, there's, this, there's this dilemma. God's promised to make right of sin, and we're crying out to God, make, right, uh, make, make the world right. Be just. Pay back our enemies. But on the other hand, he realizes if God does that, Israel goes with it too. Because Israel is just as much rebelled against God in their hearts. They started trusting just in the fact that they were born an Israelite, born a Jew, and they've forgotten the, the covenant. So that's the dilemma that they're in. Okay, the part that we're going to focus on is where Paul says, the solution has come. God has found a way to satisfy both his justice and his mercy without sacrificing either one. And we're going to look at verses uh, 20 to 26. So he goes through the problem, then he tells us what the solution is, and then really the rest of the book is talking about how do we live in response to that solution. That's a very broad overview of the book of Romans. Um, extremely broad. <laughs> Let's read verses 20 through 26. So this is where he ends up. Ultimately, this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And here's the solution. But now... But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So remember I said the whole point of the, of the book is Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel 
reveals the righteousness of God, and the righteous shall live by faith. So what was it that was revealed? It was the righteousness of God that is offered as a gift. So what is righteousness? Um, righteousness has, it, it's a very rich word. I've found this out in, in studying about this topic. I can't hope to offer you a full picture of what righteousness means in this context. But I can offer you a few pictures. Paul, when he's writing this, his hearers, when they, when they would have heard the word just uh, righteousness, they would have pictured the, the covenant that God had made with Israel, and they would have pictured a court of law. And so God's righteousness means his, his fulfilling the promises of the law, the promises of the covenant. His righteousness is the fact that he's going to come through and fulfill those promises. That's what comes into people's minds when they hear that. But it also is talking about a court of law. Now, we don't have this idea in our present society because when you go to court and uh, the, the best outcome is that you can be acquitted, right? You can be declared not guilty, which is essentially negative. You're, you're just not guilty of it. It's not saying you're in the right necessarily. It's just saying we haven't found enough evidence to prove you guilty. So you're, you're acquitted. But righteousness was the term that they used in, in the Roman courts to not only say someone was not guilty, but that someone was completely and fully in the right. They were completely and fully in the right. And so it wasn't just not guilty, it was fully justified, fully righteous. And so it carried with it not just that punishment being taken away, but it carried with it all sorts of rights and, and honor because you're the right party. You're the righteous party. So to Paul... When he's writing that, it means both of those things. He's, he's on the one hand, he's saying, this is God's proving that he has fulfilled all the covenant. And it's also God's, uh, God being vindicated in court to say that you are completely right. You are completely righteous. All right? That's what righteousness is talking about. And I love um, the way Tim Keller talks about this. He says righteousness, we can picture it by thinking about it in, in, in terms of a, a validating record, a validating record. For instance, when you go to get a job, most of the time you'll have to take your CV. And what your CV does is say, here's what I've done, here's my experience, here are my achievements, this is why I'm worthy of being given the position. Yeah? Take this. Please accept me. This is my validating record of why I should get that job. Or the same thing if you apply to university, you'll need to provide a record, a transcript of all your, your grades from school. They want to know what makes you worthy of being on this course. 
Do you have what it takes? What validates you? What God is offering to us is his validating record. His rightness, his righteousness offered as a gift. You're going for that job. Here, take my CV. (laughs) You're trying to get into that school. Here, take my grades. They count for you now as if you did them. My achievements, my rightness counts for you now. You know, every single religion in the world believes in validating records. They'll tell you that what you need to do to be worthy of getting right with God, of, of, of getting that position in heaven, is that you need to, when, you, when judgment day comes, you need to be able to produce a record of all the achievements that you have, all the good things you've ever done to make you worthy of being there. Just like a job. Just like getting into school. Just like all the things that we know and, and experience in life. And every, so everyone knows how that works, right? Everybody knows how that works. You need to be good enough to get there. And so we think that that same logic applies to, to God, to getting right with God. And so every religion will say the same thing. What you need to do is do these things, and if you've done them enough, then on judgment day, you'll offer God your CV and say, here's my record. Accept me, please. Christianity is absolutely revolutionary. It doesn't make any sense in the way that we generally do life. Because God doesn't say, give me your CV. He offers that justification as a gift. An absolutely free gift. You know, righteousness, and if you read this passage, we had the words righteousness and justification are both used. It's actually the same word in Greek. The, very, the exact same word uh, with different endings. So they, they, they change it a bit. Um, it's the same word. Everyone in life is looking for something to justify their existence. To justify why, why am I here on earth? And so we're looking for it in all sorts of different things. Either, you know, I'm going to be the coolest, or I'm going to be the baddest, or I'm going to be the best parent, or I'm going to be the most successful lawyer, or I'm going to be the best preacher. (laughs) What justifies my existence? Well, I have to prove it by doing this thing really well. They can be all sorts of good things even. But we use them to justify our existence. And actually, the Bible does say that we'll need to justify ourselves before God. It says everyone will be called to give an account before God. And when you understand that, that's a pretty terrible thing. That's a pretty scary thing. (laughs) I said God is terribly fair, right? Paul says no one has an excuse. God is completely fair. He says if you don't have the law... You'll be judged by the law that's in your heart. You'll be judged by the law that's in your heart. So that's completely fair, completely just. You haven't heard the law, God will judge you by 
the, your, the law that you know that's written on your heart. But the problem is, we don't even live up to that. <laughs> I love this illustration that, uh, I don't know who it was that said it, um, but it's almost like for people that haven't heard God's law, it's almost like we walk around with a tape recorder around our neck that only records the things that we say to other people um, of, oh, you should do this. You should not do that. In other words, it only records the things that we tell people how to live. And on judgment day, we stand before God, and God says, you know what? You didn't hear the law. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to judge you by your own standards. <laughs> Play. <laughs> we don't even live up to our own standards. I remember Ricky Gervais uh, talking about uh, he's better than most Christians because he's never broken any of the Ten Commandments, which is a completely twisted way of understanding the Ten Commandments. But I, w I would ask him, you know, if by that standard, with that, with that tape around your neck, do you even live up to your own standards? Do you live out 100% what you expect other people to do? None of us does. That's why none of us is righteous. But God, <laughs> God's solution didn't just pay the, uh, it, it didn't just clear the debt for our sin. It, can, it paid for it. He paid for it. He didn't, uh, in other words, you've got that dilemma of how can God be, be the just judge that will make things right, but also keep his promises that he will save the people that call out to him. Well, he takes it on himself. He takes sin on himself and pays the debt. And so he's both just and he's merciful. And then he offers us that justness, that righteousness as a gift. Verse 24 there. We are justified by his grace as a gift. Your translation might say, uh, trans, uh, we're, we're justified freely. But it's the word gift there uh, in the Greek. So why does it matter that, that it was a gift? That's what I really want to get into. Um, this, this month, I was reading this book called The Gift. Um, and also, like I said, reading through Romans. And all the way through Romans, he's talking about the gift. He talks, he, he talks about the, the free gift, um, especially in, in chapter 6. Or is it chapter 5? So I'm reading about the gift in Romans, and then I'm also happening, I happen to be reading this book called The Gift. And it's about gift giving versus the marketplace versus purchasing. And it really spoke a lot to me about, it, it kind of made me understand some of the significance of this. Why does it matter that it was a gift? Why not just require us to buy it just like every other religion? Why does it matter that it was a gift? Why did he do it that way? Why not just through payment? Well, 
God wanted to restore the way that things were always meant to be, which was perfect union with him. Now, as we get into what, it, what, what a gift does, we'll understand why that's significant. Okay, so how does a gift, if, if the, the topic of the book is God's righteousness being revealed, how does a gift reveal his righteousness even more? Well, a gift, for one thing, can't be earned. You can't earn a gift. What you earn are wages. And that's why Paul says the wages, what we deserve, what we've actually paid, paid for with, with our works, deserve death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. A gift can't be bought either. It can only be received. And part of what he talks about in this is, is that when you've got a culture of gifts, gifts gravitate towards the empty place, the empty person, the person without. When you've got a marketplace, all the stuff, all the commodities gravitate towards the people with money, the people with, not the withouts. When you've got a gift, it gravitates towards the people that can't pay for it. If we had to purchase it, it would only be for the people that, that can pay for it, the people that, that, that deserve it. And so actually, there's no possible way of it being bought. Because none of us, none of us has the, 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 what we need to buy it. So because it's a gift, it gravitates towards the people that need it most, the people that are empty. Thank God for that. Because we don't have enough to buy it, and we never could. A gift also, it makes much of the gift giver rather than the one who receives it. When you buy something, Who's the big shot? The salesman or you? When you buy a Ferrari, you're the big shot driving the Ferrari. Not the salesman. You can care less about the salesman. When you receive a gift, though, say if you make a huge donation to a charity, I know we, we're sometimes suspicious of that, but it's because it makes that person bigger. It makes them more glorious, if you will. And so God giving it as a gift makes him even more glorious than if he were to just sell it to us. It's to put all the attention, all the focus on him as the one who gives the gift. All of the attention goes to God when it's a gift. But the most important thing is that this, this when, I, when I read through this, it was like, wow. The most important thing that a gift does versus something that you buy is that a gift creates a bond. A gift creates a bond of love between two people. That's why you have to be careful with gifts. 
when Don Corleone comes and says, I want to give you a gift. Let me do you this favor. You got to be careful. Because by receiving that gift, you create a bond. You create a bond between you and the person that's giving you that gift. <laughs> but when you give a gift, a, a, a gifts are the language of love. Because gifts create a bond. And a gift, a, a true love gift, it's self-giving. It's limitless. There's no limit to what a lover will give to his beloved. It gives of itself. A true, uh, true love, it takes a risk of, with no guarantee of return. If you had a guarantee of return, it wouldn't really be a gift. If I only give you my Christmas gift because I know you're going to give me one back, it's not really a gift in the truest sense of the word. And true love leaves itself vulnerable and easily hurt. So God's gift is absolutely the truest kind of gift, the absolutely truest kind of love gift, because it gives, God doesn't just give his stuff to us, he gives himself to us. He dies for us. You couldn't give any more than that. It's the truest kind of gift because God gives with no guarantee of return. In fact, we could never return the gift. And it's the truest kind of gift because it leaves him absolutely vulnerable. He gives us the gift, and we have the, the, the power to receive or reject it. Really, God's gift to us is the only true gift that's ever been given. The only true gift of love is what happens on the cross. Because there's, there's no possibility of return. There's no, there's no limit to it. And there's no, there's no guarantee that we'll accept it. God puts him out, himself out there fully and completely for us. And that is a gift of love. So how do we, how do we respond to that gift? What's our response supposed to be to that gift? First of all, because it's a gift, we can't take any credit for it. We can't take any credit for it. A lot of times, you know, we, we know that, but we still like to keep just a little bit of credit. Just a little bit. Yeah, the, great, the, you know, the gift is great, the gift is great, but, you know, I did a little bit to get that. You know, I came up, I said the words. And so I, I just did, did a little bit, and then God did the rest. And we hold on to just this little bit because we have ways of, of trying to take the gift but still keeping a bit of credit for ourselves. 
And I can do that. We all can do that. We like to say, you know, how do you know that you're saved? Well, I, I repented. And so that's my reason. That's I know, I know that because that's my reason. And I'm actually I'm not pointing at the gift. I'm pointing more at what I did. What I did, what I did, what I did. That's how I know. That's how I know. And I think it's because we've got such a deep ingrained mentality of, of this purchase idea. We can't, we can't get our heads around getting something really for free. We must, you've got to do something, right? Got to do something. So we understand purchase, but we don't understand gifts. Paul's writing to ex-slaves. They know about buying their own freedom. They don't know about a good master who will give them their freedom. And we can be just the same. We can think more like slaves than like sons. A son doesn't think anything of receiving a gift from his father. I don't have to pay him back. Again, I love what Tim Keller says about this. Remember, righteousness and justification, it's, it's your validating record. The thing that saves you is what justifies us? What validates you? Is it what you've done or is it him? What val- not, not did you repent, but is Christ your only justification? your only validation, your only reason for existing. We don't just have to repent of our sin. Of course we have to do that. We also have to repent of our own righteousness. (laughs) You know, repenting means turning away. You don't just turn away from your sin. That's step one. You also turn away from every trust that you have in anything you've ever done that's been good. You turn away from your own goodness, too. And you turn away from both of them to him. Because that's the only thing that can justify you. His record. That he says, I can give to you as a gift. Now, I was thinking about this and thinking about what is it that justifies me? How do I tell what, what's justifying me? What, what, how can I know what what right now I'm trusting in as the reason for, for why I'm, I matter, the reason why I'm worthy to be around. And when I, when I examine myself like that, I can tell some clues as to what those things might be from the things that, that really knock me. When I get disappointed, uh, for instance, okay, and you might laugh at this. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I recently uh, did, a, did a master's degree, okay? Some of you know that. And for that degree, you have to write a, a, a long essay. And then most of, the, most of your thing rides on that, on what grades you get. And I was, I was very expectant, confident of getting a, a distinction, the high, you know, the highest mark. Because that's what, I've, that's what I've always gotten. And so I was expecting that. And I'm like, you know, uh, I didn't really even think twice about it. You know, that's what I'm going to get. 
And it comes back, I get the grade, and, and it's, it's, it's a B, basically, you know, it's, it's a merit. Not a terrible grade, I know. But for me, it was like, it really, it really hit me. Like, I felt really bad about it. I felt really down about it. And I was, I, I, it actually really knocked my confidence. It, it, I know it's silly, <laughs> right? You just got to be in. Um, get over it, right? And of course, get over it. It's just a B. You've gotten lots of, you know, plenty of other good grades. Why did it bother me so much? <laughs> and when I ask God, it's because I'm putting part of my validation, part of my justification in, in the grades I get. plan to cry. <laughs> and so when I, when I don't achieve that, I get knocked back and I lose confidence because somehow I've wrapped up my, my reason for being in that. What, what knocks you? What knocks you for six, as they say? What is it, and this, this is Tim Keller again, he says, what is it that, if, that, that you say, if I don't get that, I just might as well not be here? What is it for you? The other thing, you know, I, stupid things, man. Basketball for me. Can I be honest? I'm already, I've already cried up here, so. <laughs> Basketball. When I have a bad game, I come home dejected. Selena knows, don't you? I totally lose confidence in myself. My whole head falls. I feel, I feel like I feel worthless, if I'm honest sometimes. Depends how bad it was. But why? It's just a sport. Get over it, man. It's just a sport. I don't, I, I, and I can't answer you why I've put so much, why I'm wrapping myself up in that. But what's, what is it for you? That thing that you say, you know, if I don't get that, then I'll, I'm just going to die. Is it, is it coolness? Maybe, maybe that's what it is for me. I don't know. Is it, is it coolness? If you get ridiculed, if you get laughed at, then you've lost that and you just lose everything. Is it your perfect record? And when you slip up, you lose all sense of who you are. What is it for you? Because whatever answers that question, that's our validation. <laughs> that's our justification. Really, that's our idol. Because, it's Tim Keller, whatever's in that place... That's your God. Whatever you say, if I don't get that, I'm just going to die, that's, that's your idol. That's your God. And so that's why Paul goes on to say, all right, what becomes of our boasting? This is verse 27. What becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By the law of faith. 
For we hold that no one is justified, uh, sorry, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Don't just look at your sin. Look at what you boast in. Look at your boasting. Because that's, that's where you get to the heart of what justifies you. Get to your boasting. You know, the, the Pharisees were great at, at repentance and great at looking at their sin and wailing over their sin. And, and it's so easy to get into this cycle of, I come up, I pray, I, I dedicate myself to God, I go out and try and try really, really hard, and I fail, and then I come back, and, and we're not actually receiving a gift. We're just in, you know, the Pharisees did that, and they were, just stayed Pharisees. A Christian is one who takes the gift as a gift. And realizes that when we're in Jesus, his record counts for us. All of his rights, all of his honors, all of his glory belongs to us too. That is the gift. And so it's not about continually looking at our sin. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm so bad. It's whenever we sin, we put our eyes back on him. We put our eyes back on the justifier. Because that's the only thing that justifies us anyway. It's all down to him. You're not saved. I'm not saved by anything good in me. Nothing. It's all down to him. How, have I been going a long time? I can't tell. Are we okay? You with me? Yeah? Okay. I'm almost done. <laughs> this happens when I haven't prepared quite as well. Um, now, you might think, well, if it's all down to him, well, doesn't, doesn't and, and nothing about me being good counts towards my, my being worthy, well, doesn't that take away all the, you know, my reason for living a good life? Doesn't that take away my responsibility for living a good life? Well, God wants to make us into truly transformed people. And if your only incentive for doing good was the fear of being caught, then it wasn't really goodness. It's not really good. Because a good, uh, you know, a thief, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think I got this right. A thief isn't only a thief um, when they steal something. A thief is someone who would steal something if they had the chance. And so a good person isn't someone who just doesn't do something because they might get caught. But a good person is someone who would naturally just never do that. And that's the kind of people that God wants to turn us into. And the gift, receiving the gift, is what can transform us into that person. Bit by bit. And the gift 
You know, uh, uh, <laughs> this book again, it's really, it's cool. The difference between a commodity and a gift is that a commodity disappears when you use it. When you have a gift, the more you use it, the bigger it gets. When you have a gift in playing piano, the funny thing is if you don't use it, you lose the gift. The more you use it, the bigger the gift gets. The more you look at the gift, the more you use the gift, the more you consume the gift, the bigger it gets. The more we look and ponder and think and, and rest in and enjoy and, and think about God's gift to us, the more and more it transforms us. The more we turn away from not just our sin, but also any hope of being good enough, we turn away also from our righteousness and, and look to his gift, the more it transforms us. And <laughs> you know you're being transformed by the gift when you want to give it away. When you want to give it away because you realize it's not yours. You realize it's a gift and you need to give it to other people too. And that's the last stage. A life of gratitude. A real gift has to be shared. But you can't give away what you don't have. <laughs> you need the gift first. And we won't be transformed until we know it's a gift. Until we know it's a gift. You can, you can come up and I just want to finish. God is offering us the free gift of justification, of righteousness, his own righteousness as a gift to you. And maybe you want to, he, he, he wants to become the thing that justifies you. He wants to become the one that, that validates who you are, validates your existence. Because when that happens, nothing else can, can knock you. Nothing can shake you. You're on the firmest foundation that's possible. So I want to encourage all of us, don't just look at your sin. Look at what you boast in. Look at what justifies you. And if, if, if we can't answer that God's in that place, let's continually put him in that place. Let's keep looking at that gift. Let each and every one of us be able to say, if I don't get God, I might as well die. If I don't get you, I might as well not be here. Oh, Father God, Lord, I thank you that you don't just offer us a, a, a good deal on salvation, 
that if we save up enough, we can get. You offer something completely free. And to be honest, a lot of times we, we would prefer to buy it because if we bought it, then, then we wouldn't have to relate to you. We wouldn't have to be in that bond with you. Because it would be ours. We earned it. Lord, I pray that we would see the beauty of your gift and the fact that we, can, we can't take any credit for it. Nothing. It's all down to you. Lord, would that transform us? Would it transform us and would we give it away out of gratitude? Thank you, Lord. I pray you'd work in our hearts tonight. Show us what it is that we're putting in that, in that place. Show us what it is that we're looking to for our justification. To justify our existence. Lord, and would you put yourself in that place? Just break down those idols. Break down those, those false securities. And help us to receive your gift and not be rude by trying to pay it back. <laughs> Thank you, Father God. We pray in Jesus' name.